This is a Media Lab podcast. Dave, okay, I think I got it. I think I've cracked the third and final rune. All right, I don't really understand what you're talking about, but uh, tell me what it is you see. What do you mean? Well, n- mm-hmm. yes, okay. So I see, <laughs> I just had a mini stroke. Uh, what I see is it says Disney World. Disney World? Yeah, Disney World. And then I, in, in very tiny uh, mini runes here, it's like uh, like a copyright symbol sort of thing. Uh, so I'm not exactly sure what that all leads me to believe, but it's like Disney World copyright symbol. Is Disney World the one that is in California? That That is not correct. No, Disney World is in Florida. Oh. The, the, <laughs> the very sane and tempered Florida. Well, um, I guess... It means something about taking a trip to Florida. I love it. Is that? Let's go get eaten by an alligator. In his own garage, Kyle has built a machine cobbled together with parts found in his friend's church basement and a dumpster behind the local Dairy Queen. This monstrosity is now alive and evil. Kyle has convinced his friend Dave to help stop the apocalypse by reviewing films the machine picks. The ultimate purpose is still unknown, and Kyle could have probably done this himself, but he's not being dragged to hell alone. This, this is, is Kyle, Kyle and Dave, Dave versus, versus the, machine. the Machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus the Machine. My name is Kyle. My name is Kyle. What? And I'm the machine. And uh, this is a podcast where a sentient machine forces us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. Although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. Today, because the machine is so intent on us watching films from 1999, even in this, the year 2021, so happy new year, everyone, we're going to be watching the film, The Talented Mr. Ripley. Dickie Greenlee? It's Tom. Tom Ripley. Tom Ripley? We were at Princeton together. Did we know each other? Sorry, what is it? Ripley. How do you do? We'll just be for a little while. No, I like him. Marge, you like everybody. Marge, you like everybody. You uh, stay at Dickie's house, eat Dickie's food, wear his clothes. And his father picks up the tab. What did you actually do in New York? Telling lies? Forging signatures, uh, impersonating practically anybody. What? All right, uh, Dave, I, I'm curious to know what your history is with this film. I certainly have uh, a quote-unquote history with this film, but I think what we need to do in this section, first and foremost, is give a big thanks to our patron, Green Girl YYC, who continues to support us over on there. And uh, if people don't know, we're also starting to release every month additional audio which is gonna be fun we've already released one episode over there and pretty soon we'll have a second episode uh, to release for the people who support us over there i need to drink more coffee we released an episode over there yes good great this is pretend that it's the future <laughs> and not the present while we're recording happy this happy new year wait when is this coming this out is, happy new year right now it is january the 1st 2021 we did it. Unless we beat coronavirus. <laughs> yeah, we we got in Alberta. Number USA, USA, USA. <laughs> um, yes, we we have no idea what's going on tomorrow, let alone what is actually happening on January first, which is today. Luckily enough, we're in the future, but in the past. Yeah, Dave, what is your history with this film? Uh, well, I, I can't recall if I saw this in the theater. Likely not. I have watched it before and I remember that there are beautiful naked people in it and that I didn't like it. You didn't like the beautiful naked people or you didn't like the movie surrounding the beautiful naked people? Well, I mean, everybody likes beautiful naked people, but I, uh, I remember (laughs) disliking this movie. I mean, I'm shrugging. Can you see the shrug? Can you hear the shrug on audio? Yeah, it, it does translate through the audio. <laughs> yeah, I, I think for me, my memory of it is that it doesn't make sense and it gets boring and I don't care. That's that's kind of the three phrases that pop up when you say talented Mr. Ripley. Those are the three phrases that pop up when people talk about this podcast. My history with this film, I don't know how necessarily or why. That I cannot recall, but I actually did see this film in the theater. 
as, as you know, Dave, or I don't know if I've actually told you this little story. I uh, my hometown movie theater burnt down. Oh my god! So couldn't go how and see movies for a long live? time. How did I live? Is how can I live without you? Uh, the the closest place to go and see films in a theater setting, at least, was this small town called Red Deer, which is about forty five minutes east of where I grew up. These, of course, all these places I grew up in, Rocky Mountain House and Red Deer, sound up like made-up places in a fantasy fiction story, but these are real places that actually exist in the province that I live in. Regardless. It's like something out of a, it's like something out of a Stephen King novel. I know. Uh, <laughs> except a lot less foggy. So uh, we were in Red Deer, and I think the rest of the family I know did not watch this film. So I think they took my sister to see a kid's film that was out around the same time. And I watched this film, and then, honestly, part of it because of my closeted self, I was just like, ooh, like, Matt Damon and Jude Law, like, ooh, this is going to be so fun to go and, you know, watch these people. Because it, it was very much marketed as being kind of a gay romance, I recall. Like, on the television, even, it seemed like that's what was going on, the subtext of it. So, of course, I wanted to go and see this. And then... When the lights came up after I watched this and didn't really like it, like as a 16-year-old, I just don't think it was a movie made for me, <laughs> really. How did you get into this movie? This movie's well, clearly rated I, R. Yeah, my parents must have bought the ticket. This is where I, I, I don't know how Your it... Your parents uh, are so forward for farmers. I know. It's incredible. But anyways, yeah. I, I definitely watched this they movie They deserve in a lot of credit. As the lights came up, I was like, I don't know if I really enjoyed that. I mean, I enjoyed seeing Matt Damon and, and Jude Law shirtless throughout the entire movie, for sure. And everyone else is Bottomless. beautiful in this movie. But it's like, I don't know if I enjoyed the actual movie itself. Uh, that's when I discovered that my aunt and uncle were sitting like three rows <laughs> behind me. I'm like, wait, what are you doing here? Uh, they they lived like closer to Red Deer and they came in and watched movies all the time. And they're like, we really liked that and enjoyed it. I'm like, really? Okay. Well, anyways, I, it was a really awkward a experience little, to me to be like, why are you here? I detect a little espionage and well, uh, and some chaperoning, right? They're like, oh yeah, Kyle, you, you go in there. You go in there by yourself. By you know, yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Your aunt and uncle happen to be in the same showing yeah. in Red Deer. Perfect. Yeah. It's a great anecdote. So that is that is how I originally saw the talent of Mr. Ripley. And honestly, I kind of pushed the movie away and kind of forgot about it. Up until, you know, becoming a bigger film fan, this film has definitely become increasingly more revered over time. And I think especially when the director, Anthony Magella, I'm probably butchering his last name, when he passed away, like this is often pointed to like the best film that he did. Take that for what you will, but it's often referred to as the best film that he wrote and directed. And it's definitely risen in the ranks of people's love for this movie. So I, I'm, I'm curious to revisit it to see if I actually believe that, if it's something that I now uh, enjoy as an adult that I didn't enjoy as a kid, which would not be the first time that that's happened. So, yeah, that's what uh, that's what we're doing now. I'm ready. I'll never be more ready. Also, there was a interview I remember watching with Matt Damon, and he actually still considers this movie to be his best acting. Hmm. Again, take that for what you will <laughs> as well. I mean, he had a zoo. He bought a <laughs> zoo. He had so. an entire zoo. He grew to he he grew potatoes on Mars. I don't understand. That's right. He went to Mars. What, what is what is wrong with that dude? This is the best movie he ever did. I'd prefer to go to Mars. But let's find out. Maybe he, he I'm became wrong. he became really really small in that really bad movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Yes. Let's do this. Let me go thank some sponsors, and then when we return, we'll be talking a little bit more about the talented Mister Ripley. Hey there, everyone. Just Kyle jumping into the middle of the episode here one more time to tell you about all of the great people who help make this show continue to go. Happy 2021. And I hope that last night you had a joyous occasion from the safety of your own home. I drank a bunch of cider. Or not cider. It's uh, alcoholic ginger beer. You can hear the little glass there that I'm tapping on. And... Uh, raspberry alcoholic ginger beer. I was in bed by 9 p.m. So what better way to celebrate this new year than to be sitting down and listening to your favorite podcast? No, not last podcast on the left. I mean this one, the one that you're listening to. They don't need any more support. 
Anyways, Kyle and Dave versus the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This episode of Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine is brought to you by the Calgary Foundation. Whether it's funding anti-racism programs, addiction recovery, or food hampers for the hungry, for 65 years, the Calgary Foundation has proudly supported the charitable community to address some of Calgary's biggest challenges. Now, during this period of unprecedented urgent needs, Calgary Foundation renewed its commitment to building a healthy, vibrant, giving, caring, and resilient community. If you're a registered charity looking for a grant, a professional advisor creating a giving plan for your client, or a donor wanting to give back to community, discover a wealth of resources at calgaryfoundation.org and learn more about their work through Calgary Foundation's Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. This episode of Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is also brought to you by Park Power, a provider of electricity and natural gas in Alberta that offers low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your energy from. If you switch retailers, nothing changes about the delivery of electricity or natural gas to your home or business. If you have an existing contract, you're going to want to find out the terms for leaving. If you don't, then it's even easier for you to sign up for Park Power. The choice is yours, and there's a better deal available to you. Learn more at parkpower.ca. All right, Dave. After... I guess, 21 years since I've seen this movie. Uh, I definitely have some thoughts on The Talented Mr. Ripley, but let's uh, start with you. In our most non-spoilery way possible, what did you think about The Talented Mr. Ripley? I'm just wondering whether you have thoughts from your brain or from your loins. Um, <laughs> let's say both. Personally, I, uh, I don't know. It was, uh, it was okay. I still feel like leaving the couch with you beside me watching it i uh, uh-huh. i still feel like i don't it like it leaves a pretty sour taste uh, in my mouth i don't know if i like it and i definitely wouldn't watch it again but mm. i was fairly gripped uh, it was gripping and uh, certainly Are you intentionally trying to make sexual innuendos or is this just a happy accident <laughs> No, it it had me bent over. I was I was really no I was <laughs> I was uh, I was quite I was quite in it. Yeah, okay. in it, it. it was good. It was uh, it was good uh, up till up till the big finish. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh huh. No comment from this side <laughs> of the fence, uh, Dave. I'm curious, and I I really hate what I'm about to say to you, but no, I no. wonder if you being straight actually hinders your interpretation of this film um and i don't love saying it that way because i don't know if you necessarily have to be uh, any one way to empathize or to understand film but i do think this is really filled with overt of course homosexual energy but there's some very subtle things that i think that the director is doing here to like kind of prey on that idea of someone trying to be their true self and not really understanding how to be that true self appropriately. I have a lot more to say about that, about stuff that I think works and doesn't work uh, in that way. And how this film, because it is an adaptation of a book, takes a lot of liberties that do not show up in the book whatsoever. So this is very much like the writer-director's interpretation and making this a brand new thing, rather than it being a strict adherence to the source material. Have you read the book? I have not. I okay. have read extensive Wikipedia Wikipedia <laughs> synopses of it and so you've read what it. other people mm-hmm. said. So basically, I've read it. I, I I will say, I mean, of course, I don't have the specific perspective or experience of a, of a non-heterosexual uh, male. Certainly not with that attitude, you don't. However, I do think that the issue for me is not the closeted or sort of coming out or the uh, uh, assumption of a personal identity. It's that this turns out to be, I'm, well, I can't spoil it. Well, we'll talk about where yeah, it, it ends up. Yeah, it turns out to be something else, think, yeah. Yeah, I think that's w- what I don't like about it is, uh, is what this movie turns out to be. Yeah, I, okay, about. yeah. So yeah. we'll talk about that in the adaptation portion of it because that I think is very clearly this movie's interpretation of the character rather than it being 
and what this movie is actually trying to do with that idea. So I just yeah, I just don't want to you know spoil it prematurely. I don't I don't want to. We want to edge it. We want to get you right yeah. up until the edge, and then release all at once the information about. I mean, there's just no point in coming to the point too early. That's right. Right? And nobody's nobody's satisfied with that. Uh, I'm satisfied <laughs> with that. But. What are you two talking about? Okay, so as you know, I we need an M rating. <laughs> <laughs> I was not the biggest fan of this movie when I originally watched it in theaters all those years ago. So what I was caught by when viewing it here now as an adult. A, is how beautiful the film is just aesthetically, the way that it's framed and the way that it's shot, and also the people that they chose to be in this movie, too. Uh, so I cannot lie. This is literally the first note that I wrote down here, which is, why is everyone so hot in this? Beautiful. And I think that is by design. I have always found Matt Damon to be fairly attractive, but this is like him at his like, most hot uh in my opinion. Jude Law, of course, had not fully balded and become kind of creepy, in my opinion, in his older age. So, like, he is, like, the most peak physically attractive. Even Gwyneth Paltrow is, like, framed and, like, shot so beautifully in this. And then you have Kate Blanchett, who's, like, continues to be stunningly beautiful even now. And it's like, who do you not have in here that is just, like, supposed to be kind of eye candy for the audience? So there's, there's, there's that. But I do think that I picked up a lot more on the themes of this. And it it feels like to me, this entire story hinges on the Ripley character, of course, he's in the title, but like whether or not you actually sympathize with him or the people that he hurts. And I think that's spoiler alert. Well, I don't know. I don't know. It's in it's in the trailers. So I don't think I'm like talking out of of school here. The I will. I yeah. did have a note that there are so many crappy movies that try to do an ensemble of beautiful people, but this one has the most beautiful people of the era that could actually act. Well, I, I was going to say, we, did, we watched thing. Cruel Intentions, remember? Again, yeah, nobody's beautiful. Filled with beautiful yeah. people, but it's like <laughs> the movie itself is not very good. At least in this case, in my opinion, the movie is actually good uh, or is mm. requiring you to think and engage with it on a deeper level than what Cruel Intentions ever tried to do. So for me, I think what the writer and director are trying to portray is a guy who is lost adrift, doesn't know what they want to do, but has this incredible one skill, which is mimicry. He can mimic people really, really well. And he discovers along the way, the key to this is a line that he says actually quite late in the film, which is that I would rather be a fake somebody than a real nobody. Is that how he says Mm, it? Yeah, that's right. Right? Yeah. I think literally that is the thesis to this film. Uh, He goes about it. Thesis. I think that is a completely, he goes about it in a completely deranged way, but that is his driving force. And it's going to be, uh, and I think it ends up in a tragic way. Uh, we, we throw away around that word Shakespearean sometimes, a little bit too glibly in my opinion. But this feels like a Shakespeare ending in that it's like, I don't know if anything is happy in this ending. It seems like a lot of despair has happened. You're glib. Okay. Well, there we go. <laughs> this movie needs to be talked about in spoiler po- in spoiler terms. So let's do this. Let's go through some backstory and then we can jump into actual specific talking points. So The Talented Mr. Ripley was released on Christmas Day, 1999. I did not watch it, it on Christmas, Christmas Day, 1999, just FYI. We have already talked about a couple of movies that were also released on that exact same day. This was like a stacked Christmas because... Also released on that day was Galaxy Quest, uh, written by Robert Gordon and David Howard, directed by Dean Parasot, starring Tim Allen, Sigourney Weaver, Alan Rickman, Tony Shalhoub, and Sam Rockwell. But also, it was Magnolia, written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, starring Tom Cruise, Philip Baker Hall, Philip Seymour Hoffman, who also appears in this movie. Uh, well, Actually, Philip Baker Hall also appears in <laughs> this movie, too, weirdly enough. So you could have gone and seen two movies with two of the same actors. Uh, William H. Macy and John C. Riley were also in Magnolia. Currently, it is rated 7.4 on IMDb, 76 on Metacritic, and over on Rotten Tomatoes, from 133 critics, it's at 83%. And from the users, 131,712 of them, they rated at an 80%. So it is certified fresh over on Rotten Tomatoes. It is available on DVD and Blu-ray. You can buy or rent it on iTunes. You can also rent it via Google. And unfortunately, it is not on any streaming service 
in Canada. Stars is really letting us down over here. I'm going to say it was on a tear there of like six movies in a row that you could get on Stars, and now not a single bite. This is why they never emailed us back. They looked at their uh, list and like, no, these guys are done. They already Pulled watched their, their entire catalog. Like, yeah. No, we don't have the rights to any of those. They just don't like you. Its budget was $40 million. Just think about that. $40 million for that cast, someone who was coming off an Oscar win, in fact, for Gwyneth Paltrow. and uh, well, shouting, she's a woman and they weren't paying women that's in true enough. Well, Julia Roberts was getting 20 mil to, for a picture, just uh FYI. That's true. Uh, yeah. And shooting in like, uh, what was that? Uh, Spain Italy. and France and, and, and Germany and all those beautiful places. So great for them. Shoot that with 40 mil. It opened to $12 million. Domestically, it would make 81. Internationally, it would make 47. So it got a grand total of $128 million. So this was definitely a hit in any stretch of the imagination. That would be $201 million if you consider inflation. You gave them probably $4.25 or something of that total. It's great. Probably. Good it was, job, it was probably like a few yeah. weeks after. It might have even been in the cheap theater. I can't even remember where we watched <laughs> two it. Two bucks. It's like, here's $2 to watch The Talented <laughs> Mr. Ripley. Uh, its plot description from IMDb is, in late 1950s New York, Tom Ripley, a young underachiever, is sent to Italy to retrieve Dickie Greenleaf, a rich and spoiled millionaire playboy. But when the errand fails, Ripley takes extreme measures. It stars Matt Damon as Tom Ripley, Jude Law as Dickie Greenleaf, Gwyneth Paltrow as Marge Sherwood, Philip Seymour Hoffman as Freddie Miles, and Kate Blanchett as Meredith Logue. Uh, anything you want to say about any of those actors? Um, they're all great, accomplished. You might know this, but I didn't. Uh, it says, apparently, that uh, Matt Damon, when he was at uh, Habit, would break dance to earn money. What? <laughs> I need to there's see no videos way. of that. There's no uh, yeah, way that it is culturally appropriate in any stretch of the imagination. The other thing about breakdancing is he he and uh, Marky Mark, they cross paths a lot in the yeah. background in terms well, of I like roles and stuff. So. Boston is like a small town and like everyone from Boston knows everyone else from Boston, it seems like. Do you know about the writing, uh, sorry, selling of the Goodwill Hunting script? They did the well, M&M thing. What do you mean the M&M thing? Uh, is it Eminem Smarties that, uh, which rock band does it? They they put in a clause oh. in their contract to see if people are paying attention. So apparently uh, they were shopping Goodwill Hunting. They didn't know if anyone was actually reading the script. So they snuck in a random uh, sex scene between the two uh, Matt Damon and uh, Ben Affleck's characters and only Miramax caught it. So they sold it to Miramax. That's so funny. I didn't know that. Uh, I do know, I mean, it is definitely like part of Hollywood lore, him, Ben Affleck, write this script. It goes on to win like best screenplay at the Oscars that year. It's this really big success story. But uh, the director of uh, Goodwill Hunting, once again, my mind has failed me. <laughs> uh, he did the Columbine. Yeah, he did. What is he, that guy's uh, name? He did Elephant. And he did, he's on the Gus Bedrock. Van Sant. Yeah, Gus Van Sant. Gus Van Sant, I think, did an uncredited basic rewrite of that movie. <laughs> well, you yeah. know who else? Kevin, Kevin, Kevin Smith. Smith, I think, punched up some of the stuff, too. So yeah. it's not like they just wrote it in. It stayed the exact way their script was written. I think a lot of people got their hands on it and molded that into the film. That is but that's how you know it's that's why Which it's is, good. I mean, that's the story. Exactly. This is, again, yeah. why I don't go across this auteur theory. It takes a lot of people to massage things into something that's great. All right. Let's keep the massage. All right. We'll have that uh, conversation. Anyways, uh, I also want to point out, like we talked about in Magnolia, how great we think Philip Seymour Hoffman is. Boy, what a great example of that. If you had seen both of these movies on the same day, they were released on the same day, to see how... His character acts and reacts in Magnolia versus this one are two polar opposite characters. Fundamentally different people. Yeah. He and actually you believe looks both different. of him. Like, in, like yes. yeah, he carries himself differently in both yeah. of these. Like it's amazing He's such acting a work. Great yeah. douchebag. He does douchebag better than most douchebags I've met. Yeah. Yeah. And then this is an early Cape Blanchett movie. This is my to, to jump ahead a little bit. This is kind of going to be partly my criticism. And I realized in 1999 why it didn't happen this way. But in the year 2021, because we're in the year 2021 right now, Dave, I honestly think Gwyneth Paltrow and Kate Blanchett's role should have been switched. Like the, the each actor should have oh. been in the other person's role. 
in my opinion, but that's kind of a very small quibble. Well, speaking of that, hold on, let me see if I, I mean, I, I have a total man crush on Kate Blanchett. I, I mean, I think the world does. She is easily one of the best actresses yes. that we get to uh, partake in in our generation. Apparently, she was considered for Mrs. Smith in Mr. and Mrs. Smith, but pulled out. So we might not have had Brangelina. Mm-hmm. Um, she was originally supposed to be in Closer, but she got wow. pregnant. And so they brought Julia Robertson for that role. There's another one there where like- Yeah, she was, she was considered for a lot of different roles that she eventually did not get or turn down. I realize she's got like four or five kids. So I think a lot of her mid, uh, late 90s, early 2000s, uh, she was considered for a lot of big movies where she pulled out because she had a family. Yeah, um, but her talent was about, able to continue on because I think a lot of actresses would not have been able to come yeah. back from that to have you know a bunch of kids and then- Still work. Well, you want to talk about being able to do different things. I mean, she is uh, regal and elfin and wins for being Elizabeth and she's Galadriel and that's my favorite. Yeah. But uh, she also won an Oscar for playing Bob Dylan. I know. I yes. mean, uh, yeah. yeah. That is a, an Oscar by the way, for, that is a weird movie. I'm not I here. Like it's like movie. one of the weirdest movies I've ever watched. It's, yeah. Yes. Although um, we did already talk about Bjork. Yeah. And then she won an Oscar for... Uh, Something else. Oh, for being a train wreck in Blue yeah, Jasmine. Yeah, in Blue Jasmine. That's the last uh, yeah, Woody Allen cool. movie to be nominated for stuff. Yeah. Oh, and the other thing about her is apparently she took Lord of the Rings because she always dreamed of being in a movie where she had fake pointy ears <laughs> and she had them bronzed. I think that I'll eventually bronze the two of you. That's she kept hilarious. The ears. And she yeah. was never cast in a Star Trek movie, unfortunately. <laughs> Well, uh, been by the way, from our chat, we are streaming live on YouTube right now. So if people ever want to be notified of uh, of when we go live to record these things, you can go over to our YouTube channel. But uh, Jenna's in the chat and she says, I dare someone to name their kid a Dickie in current times, which I think is true. I don't think that's really a nickname that anyone gives their kids anymore. I'm going to the next time I meet a Rick or Richard, I'm going to start calling Dickie. them Dickie and until they punch me in the face. So quickly, Jude Law was roommates with Ewan McGregor. So oh, that's good. God, they, that, right? that would have been too much beauty in the you same room. Yeah, like, you would have had a stroke. God, I would have like fainted. Talking about premature. Yeah, you would have been in trouble in that. And Jude Law was originally asked to play Superman in the Brendan Routh one. Isn't oh, that weird? Weird. That would have been not good. But, uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, that movie so wasn't something. good. Although I will say this, Brandon Routh has actually proven himself to be actually a great ambassador of Superman, uh, unlike some other people that have played Superman uh, on TV shows. And I know it's a Christopher Reeve trope, but I thought he was okay as Superman visually. Yeah. It's just not a well-written movie. And then just quickly, Gwyneth Paltrow is insane. And, um, you know, Goop is you disgusting. Don't, you don't steam your vagina, Dave? <laughs> Steam my vagina with uh, jade eggs yeah. and uh, having enemas. I mean, I might have a daily coffee enema. That's hard to say. I am on my third one this morning, but I don't know. I always thought she was kind of weird, but uh, she, she is, proved She's it. proved to be just that. Uh, this was written and directed by Anthony Mangella. 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 We'll say Mangella because that sounds funner to say. Funner. Sounds that sounds more like- fun to say. Look at this guy, English major over here, and they said a word that doesn't exist. Written and directed by Anthony Mangella, based on the novel by Patricia Highsmith. Uh, he started his career on television, most notably, from my perspective, is The Storyteller. Do you remember The Storyteller from the early 1990s? This was a no. Jim Henson-produced show with puppets, and they would retell like Greek myths and stuff like that with puppets. Mm. Uh, partly com- comedic, but it was actually much more serious. So he wrote all nine episodes of that. And they actually made this beautiful hardcover book with like illustrations and written out myths that I currently own. It's a great book. Uh, he would jump into feature films with Truly Madly Deeply, which he wrote and directed. He would then write and direct The English Patient, which won a bunch of Oscars, including for him for Best Director. And so with his blank check in hand, he decided to come and make this movie. And then his other two films were Cold Mountain and Breaking and Entering before his untimely death due to a hemorrhage at the age of 54 in 2008. Uh, he had written the script for the musical film Nine, but uh, Rob Marshall would take that up and, and direct that into something that was considered pretty awful. I never heard of it. Uh, you probably should say that it's like one of the few movies that Daniel Day-Lewis has starred in, and it was not received very well. Anyways, that's Anthony Mangella. Any uh, relationship with any of those other films from from him? 
No, I mean, I think like many Oscar winners, the English patient is reviled for winning an Oscar. I didn't mind it. I, I remember it was kind of low, slow and boring. Yeah, but, I uh, can't really even remember much. of. I've read the book, actually. I read the book for Canadian Lit Class because it's written by a Canadian author. There was a mummy in it. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> sort of, yes. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I remember being basically bored through that entire movie when we watched it in that very same class. Isn't it like three hours long? Something. That's a long class. But it's a, well, yeah. it's a good way to take over two full classes to watch that movie. Yeah. Let's get to the movie. Let's, let's get to get... the meat and bones. Okay. So let's get to the meat and bones. Here, Here's the thing that I want to start off with. I just want to talk about this in the terms of adaptation. So in the book, we are yes, introduced... We are introduced to the character of Tom Ripley, but yeah. he is very much more in the book proactive in what he is going to do to Dickie Greenleaf. So he goes by the blessing of his father. So that all that works. But he knows when he leaves that he is going to kill him and take over his identity. I actually don't think that the, the movie, this movie, has that same plot line. I don't think he knows he's going to do that until they're in the boat together. In my opinion, is- it doesn't feel like he is setting this up premeditated. I'm thinking of doing something premeditated to you right now. I just yeah. want to say briefly, I had the chance to watch another movie this week that is adapted from the same source material. It's called Purple Noon. It's a French film. So it's Tom Ripley. It's all in French, of course. It's, a, it's an interesting film because it's essentially same plot line, sort of, except it cuts out the very first like 30 minutes of this film. It starts with them... Um, sailing around in Italy. And, and 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 that and that sort of thing. And again, in that one, it's premeditated. He is there to kill Dickie Greenleaf. He knows he's going to do it, and then he does it, takes over his identity, and then the rest of the movie is him trying to evade capture. But I don't know. What do you think? Do you think that in this movie that we're led to believe that he's going there to do that, or that it comes across because he feels like he doesn't have a choice? I I think it tries, and I think that's the part that I found very awkward uh, in the intro, and then. As we're in the middle portion, I get confused of whether this is supposed to be a closeted romance or, you know, a plot for murder. So, for example, I think the illusion is when he's prepping for his trip. Even the contrived way he's in this uh, penthouse operatic piano playing scene, which was Mm. so random, meeting Dickie's father. And then when he's prepping, he's already done research on Dickie, which I think is kind of weird. So, there's a impression a little bit with the conversation that it's opportunist because the father leads a lot of the interaction. Oh, you know, were you at Harvard? And he's like, sure. And then when he arrives there, he introduces himself to Kate Blanchett's character as Dickie Greenleaf. So there, I think there's a sense that the whole thing is meant to be a con uh, or a murder plot. Um, but then once he's there, it gets very strange. And I, I think it loses its ability to kind of keep its opening... Uh, thriller premise as you know as, so i started thinking like is this um about a romance is this a, a con gone wrong because he falls in love with his victim um the murder becomes a murder of passion rather than of a sinister plot right and then i thought that was the end of the movie because that's what i remember the end of the movie being uh, and it took more than an hour to get there or it felt like and then the rest of the movie becomes this evasion of capture and essentially as we kind of text uh talked about on our couch yeah. uh, texted about after uh becomes a horror movie in my mm-hmm. opinion and i you know by the end this is why when i left the uh, uh digital theater cinema as they say i didn't know what to think anymore so bring up this idea of an adaptation again i neither of us actually read the book but you have been wikipediaing i don't know if what the author's intent was. Um, so by all intents and purposes, because she was still alive when the first adaptation came out. Um, and apparently there was a TV adaptation as well, like a TV movie that was made. And in both of those cases, she has said like this was not a gay romance. That was not what the story was. It's Tom Ripley was using his charm to get what he wanted. And if he needed to pretend to be a gay man for a while, he would do so. Again, I don't think that that's what this movie is trying to suggest no. about Tom Ripley uh, at all. And it's it's fascinating to me because I was like, I'm pretty sure Anthony Mangella, like had a wife and kids. He did. Mm-hmm. And it's like, why was he so interested in exploring this like sexuality? Because nothing that I can see suggests that he was a closeted gay man, a gay man even bisexual even like i don't see anything 
extant that would suggest that he is. And again, not to say you have to be to explore that idea. I was going to say, I think you're framing it a little bit like the, in our intro. I mean, I think that there's a strong sense, even when we did Boys Don't Cry, that you have a line that only people who identify a certain way have the right to talk about a certain thing. I think maybe this is a reflection that the late 90s were becoming more socially and cultural forward than, remem- than we remember them to be. I think for all the better movies we've reviewed this year, there's a tone where people are challenging these norms, yeah. both uh, with feminism, with gay rights, with trans rights, even in the way some of these movies are written. You know, The Matrix, uh, content, uh, commenting on you know, social hierarchy and and capitalism or whatever. Well, you want to it, call it. it also has a lot of, well, quote unquote, hidden like transgender writing inside sure. of that movie too. So I think, um, I don't know. Yeah. Just to respond yeah. to that point, I don't want it to make it sound like I only think that gay people should be able to write gay characters. I'm just saying that I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that he decided to take the source material in that direction when that's not what even the source material was trying to communicate yeah, it's hard to say without reading the book but i can i can see that an an inversion as a writer would be interesting where it's not a boilerplate crime thriller where yeah, yeah. he could make it about a crime of passion and still follow the point like that might be a challenge for him uh he did get his start writing a lot of theater and stuff like that he so did, yeah. he may have just thought of it as a fun way to to adapt a script cuz I, I i don't know i've never written a script but i can imagine it can get a little dry. <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> if it's you're a, just copying a I book. I mean, yeah. like actual skip scripts, even the, even the people that can write beautiful language and stuff, a lot of it is just physically like he goes to the door, he opens the door. Like you have to basically just tell them what is happening in the sh- in the plot. I should point out that neither of you are following the script that I wrote. I, I guess I just have a, a bit of a fundamental disagreement with how this movie even gets set up because for me, just watching this movie, I never felt that anything was premeditated by the Tom Ripley character. He was taking opportunities when they were presented to him, and he knew he had talent, like he has this piano talent, he has mimicry talent, uh, he, he discovers he has a forgery talent, so there's all these things that he kind of discovers along the way. And sure, yes, like when, once he arrives and he starts saying, I'm Dickie Greenleaf, I think he's trying that persona on because he is so fundamentally... Disgusted might be a strong word, but unhappy at the very least with who he is uh, as a person, because everything in this movie points to the fact that that Matt Damon is a closeted gay man who can't actually say those words out loud. Uh, To me, that is what this entire movie is about in many cases, where he he wants to be in he does want to be in a relationship with Jude Law. He would be more than happy to abandon the father's plan, be with him in a relationship, and travel the world. Uh he even calls it like the Marge problem with Gwyneth Paltrow and catches himself when he sees that Dickie is like not in on that uh, same idea. Uh, and and so uh, that that that's what the thrust is. And then when he is uh, very obviously rebuffed from that, that's when the murder happens. And then the entire rest of the movie is him trying to hide the fact that he even did that one crime. Uh, for me, that's what I read this film as. And I think this is why it feels awkward. I, I, like, I, I uh, wouldn't disagree with your seeing the movie that way. I do think that there are hints of, for example, arriving there, having already been able to mimic his father, mm-hmm. shows some kind of structure and intent. Uh, it doesn't necessarily imply that he's going to murder anybody. But there's a there's a con already in place. It does, in hindsight, to me, smack more of the dangers of falling in love with your mark. And mm. certainly, certainly, the theme of being closeted is important. Whether he actually is or uh, has to try not to break from his con character could be debatable. I I don't know. Uh, again, it's why I felt that portion came off awkward. Not so much because he shouldn't fall in love with Jude Law. Who cares? Of course, they're going to fall in love with each other. They're gorgeous. But I think that's where it lands awkward for me because I think perhaps the idea is that he ends up staying there much longer and holding off on his plan because he becomes so enamored with Jude Law. And in the end, uh, he finally has to enact what his original intent was when uh, he realizes that his new desire is not going to work out. You know, Dickie's not going to to dick around with him and he's going to have to uh, pursue his original goal of living as Dickie. But 
you know what also makes it awkward, and this is sort of a classic novel and, and Hollywood trope, is once he's committed the crime, why the fuck does he stay in Italy for the rest of the movie? You know, if you've already got access to the money, you have access to the ability to, um, it's like he wants to get caught. It's like when uh, we joke about white people in horror movies and they just have to keep living in this haunted house, you know, just to show people that they can do it. There's something I felt like by the end of the movie, I just, I couldn't even comprehend why yeah, I he mean, was staying in that spot. Um, I mean, there's two, it's getting I think a little annoying. Fleen certainly tips your hand as far as like, this guy probably did it if he but nobody even was the knew last he person was... seen. Uh, but there's the second kind of plot reason where the inspector actually tells him you can't leave Italy. Uh, by that time. By that sure. time, yes. But but yes, the initial time he probably had time to hop a jet and get back home if he I really wanted so. to. And this was an era where everybody was, you know, they're on telegrams and people were drawing banknotes off of passport right, ideas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, you could disappear very quickly. You know, you could be in South America like all the Nazis. Speaking of Nazis earlier, you can go to Argentina, you know, with, uh, with a handful right. of $100 bills. The good old days. But he wanted to stay in Rome. Um, so, so for me, though, again, this kind of points to what will often be called in like LGBTQ circles as second puberty, where because you have to hide yourself for so long in certain cases, you don't really know how to act in certain situations because you have prevented yourself from actually acting like the real you until you're able to act like the real you. And then all of these sensations are basically new that most people have experienced when they were teenagers or at least preteens going through that puberty. You're now experiencing, experiencing these sometimes in your late 20s, early 30s, because that's when you have uh, decided to act like your true and real self. And I feel like that is very evident on the Tom Ripley character. I think you're seeing him actually being truly happy for the first time in his life and not just going through the motions. And I honestly think that that's why the ending is so tragic when he uh, kills the second person, because he's getting too close to understanding the truth of all the people that he's killed. And so he smothers him to death. And I think a very beautifully filmed scene, a very interesting way that they do that in audio only. And you only see him like crying in the aftermath, but you know exactly what he had. Well, what he did, because I don't think he's ever going to be happy. He's going to constantly be on the run, trying to hide all his tracks and never be able to actually live the life that he wants to actually live. I think that's the tragedy of this. Whether you actually feel sorry for him is a different question, but it is not a great uh, life to be constantly on the run and not being able to be who you really are. Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 again, I'm not disagreeing with the sentiment or the experience of it. I think as the movie is, I found that particular ending to be the most disappointing part. I, this is why I call it a horror movie. I don't actually see this as a tragedy or a drama by the end. I think this thing loses itself by the time he's killed uh, Phyllis Seymour Hoffman's character when he's... Uh, just about to be caught by Gwyneth Paltrow, who has uh, surmised that he is, in fact, the killer. And, um, I mean, obviously. I mean, he's at the scene of every well, crime. Yeah, like, he's she's like existing the only sane on a, on person, really. At the end of it, it's like, yeah, yeah. Like, of course, he's probably the one who did it. Uh, and everyone else is not able to see through those. That is, again, talking about the adaptation. It's interesting how both movies don't follow what the book does. Because in the book... She never likes him. She hates him from, from day one in the book sure. and never fully thinks that he is on the up and up. Uh, in the first movie, in Purple Noon, they actually end up dating, which is bonkers. And in this film, yeah, in this film, she kind of likes him at the beginning and then turns uh, halfway through. So it's interesting how both of them kind of go at it from a different angle. I actually thought her characters handled pretty well, and I yeah. thought that. It would have been a better, I mean, I don't necessarily need a movie to tie all the bows by the end, but much like I was frustrated him with him staying on uh, in Rome, he murders, uh, I can't remember the actor's name, uh, but he murders his new boyfriend on a boat after having been spotted by Kate Blanchett. Where is he going to go? He's on a fucking boat. You know, like He's that body's boat. about to I'm be discovered. Yeah. That body's about to be discovered. Like the entire staff of the uh, boat knows that they're likely together or have been cavorting at least well, on deck yeah and uh, just know that there is four additional novels in this series so <laughs> oh is that true he 
Yeah, there is actually. Yeah. <laughs> so well, he does. I, I, he does I, escape eventually. Well, this is the thing. You know, I, I think if they were going to go that way, much like a heist movie, they need to frame the film differently. If they're going to make this about a crime of passion, you need to. I think you need to change the tone at the end to get away from this being a treatise on um, sociopathy, <laughs> yeah. rather than. Uh, you know, and then maybe, yeah, if you want to go this way and f focus on the passion portion um, about him being closeted and learning, I think there are, you know, maybe not even get to the point where he kills his boyfriend. Like, why can't we get to some kind of illusion that he's uh, happy, that he meets Kate Blanchett on the boat? I mean, that alone could uh, speak more to this tension for his identity without him having to end the movie with a grisly uh, strangling death of a dude uh, in his bed while pretending to love him. It's fucking weird. It, it actually very much worked <laughs> for me. I could see him. He's so uh, concerned about being found out that he's willing to do anything, even if it's not rational. Like it, He's not acting like a rational person. Uh, no. I mean, he's murdering people first and foremost. I think that's yes. the tip off. Um, but, but to, to uh, that kind of same point, it is actually fascinating. If this movie was made literally today and was as successful as it was, there is no scenario where there's not like a sequel greenlit now so that in two years you get like the follow-up to the ripley storyline sure now, i don't think anthony mangello was even interested in making this a series he just wanted to make this film but it's like nowadays you just wouldn't be able to it'd be like uh let's do a sequel with or without you we're making a sequel well disney would just remake it but right. uh, you know with will smith in it no i they made it with Will Smith, but a completely CGI Will Smith, just for the <laughs> challenge of it. Like, why why don't people write new movies anymore, Kyle? That's a tangent, but uh, I mean, they anyways. do. You just can't find them. That's the issue. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, let's go through some of. Uh, I just wrote down some notes here as I was watching it. Number one, talking about uh, Matt Damon, like getting this persona. Like one of the biggest things at the very beginning of the movie is that he knows that Dickie likes jazz. So he's like, he has to like do that crash course in jazz. He doesn't listen to it. I loved all those scenes of him trying to remember which uh, composer it was. And I love that there's, there's an ending to one jazz song. And he goes like, ugh, because he's so classically trained. He's like, no, that's not how you end the song. Anyways, those little touches I really enjoyed about him like trying to get into the character of someone who likes jazz. You know what? Uh, you know what caught my mind just because I'm a judgmental dick is that it's LPs. He would have put the fucking record on. So he knows what he's listening to. If well, you put on a check. he's blindfolded. He put his blindfold <laughs> on. And then he put the. Yeah. Anyways. Uh, but I did like the way that's cut. And it's fun always when you have these, yeah, montages of people training to become. And this is the other thing with what you were saying you couldn't see. He is, there's a stage where he's planning to do this thing. It's not set up necessarily just so that he could become friends with Dickie. It's like. There's an implication, uh, even I think he's doctoring a, a passport in that section, I think, um, where you see some uh, intentionality, not maybe not murder. He's not sharpening I mean. a knife I, I don't or think, like I don't building think the, an oar. Yeah, I don't think it's murder necessarily that's on his mind. I honestly yeah. think that he wants to do kind of what Jude Law, what Dickie originally proposes, which is like, let him just like fuck off with live his boat off the money. and then yeah. he can just live off the money. And then... That yeah. turns because, you know, uh, Tom Ripley is a little bit of a clingy boyfriend. And it's like, listen, guy, I just need a little bit of some space. Dependency issues. Yeah, so there, there might be some, some let's stuff Let's like back going off maybe a little bit. You're coming on a bit too strong. <laughs> and when I come home and you're in my clothes uh, singing and dancing, that's a bit of a turnoff. Um, which, by the way, the amount of like third party anxiety and like shame I had watching that scene of him coming home with him with his clothes on i'm like nope nope this is like the worst <laughs> this is the absolute worst uh oh, by the way you can definitely see jude Lodd's penis in one scene that's now my personal screensaver yeah he's got a great butt great he's butt. Got a great butt yeah i think though i think it's a shame that um you know matt damon didn't go tete-a-tete -tete with this why did why do we only get to see <laughs> just just the scene where they they touch penises tip for a to second, tip, if, you, yeah. if, if, if you will. Why is <laughs> a it symmetrical that, silhouette? Yeah. Why is it only Come Jude on. Law that has to be naked in this movie? Why can't Matt Damon also be naked in this movie? Well, that's isn't a real this question. A metaphor, a metaphor for your clothes. No, I don't know. Anyways, yeah. but uh, it's nice. We got to see some butt. You know, you see too much side boob, right? In right. Hollywood, there's 
You know, there's so much uh, female body appropriation, but it's nice to see a nice butt from time to time. It's nice, <laughs> nice to see a yeah. butt. I also think it's hilarious that Jude Law and Kate Blanchett, who are British, are playing American, while Gwyneth, who's American, is playing British. But she regardless, was playing British. Yeah, she has an accent in it, and she says she's from she somewhere in England. She does not have an accent in it. She loses her accent in one scene, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> she is playing British. Yeah. Oh God. I, I think the part actually what tips him over to actually attack Dickie, like actually murder him, is that he says like uh, a phrase. That is like the worst thing for Tom Ripley. And I kind of uh, uh, agree, not agree with this, but I sympathize with this a bit because I'm always afraid that it's happening to me, which is says, you're boring. Like, that's what Tiki says. So I was like, you're boring. You're becoming boring to me. I think that literally is what like is the tip over, tipping point for Tom Ripley to like attack him with that or. Well, there's a great, uh, you know, aside obviously from the homosexual sort of uh, plot uh, lines is um, again comment on class inequality and just seeing all these privileged little shits uh, living in a world that is presumably untouchable, being able to treat everyone around them like objects. And we do get that great moment with Jude Law having to start to face the consequences of being such a piece of shit. Uh, when the Italian woman, I can't remember the character's name, uh, commits suicide because of her up to that point unknown pregnancy. Mm-hmm. But that's where this movie starts to make that first twist when she, when her floating body pops up out of the uh, surf, the ocean, yeah. and just kind of like, oh, this is not the movie I remember. Right. This is about to get much darker. And it does, yeah. Oh yeah, and the, the horror movie, the first scene is Helen jumped up when if I was watching with her was that they showed the full gore of getting your face smashed in by an oar. Yeah, uh, like, it was not implied at all. No, <laughs> he was not pretty. Streaming he, blood. That might be the beginning of his hair loss. I think. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all Matt's fault. And I mean, if you're gonna go kill somebody, why wear white? That's what I have to ask. <laughs> like, plan you know that a bit better. Trivia-wise, two things I just remembered. Uh, Matt Damon actually broke Jude Law's rib in that scene. Oh, really? Um, and uh, apparently Jude Law learned to play saxophone for that part. But uh, Well, apparently sure Matt Damon also learned how to play piano, although he's dubbed over <laughs> on the yeah, soundtrack. He's not actually playing not gonna the piano. not going to be a concert level. Yeah. No, but no. maybe so that the fingers work. But he can do, you know, a, that's the mean, worst. He can do a mean hot cross buns. Like, he can do it so well. <laughs> you know... That's Actually, the... I, I want to recut of them actually playing the instruments in those scenes. It's like, prunk, 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 prunk. <laughs> you know, it'd be shocking is if they're actually actually good. good. I mean, they they are talented. My favorite character is uh, Italian Detective Paro. Yeah, I, fun. Uh, yeah, I love that guy. Yeah, and that was my that was my high point. I'm looking at my notes. Um, that was just my to, just to mention the Philip Seymour Hoffman character. Of course, he's the one who is the one of the first to kind of put two and two together, and it's like. Okay, like something is not smelling right here. Like th- this is not how Dickie would act. Why are you in his clothes? Like this is not on the up and up. Again, this is part horror, part thriller. But I think that that scene is so expertly done mm. with like setup yeah. and payoff because there's like that lingering of like the bust at the beginning of the scene, and then with that scene plays out, and then it's like revealed like, uh, no, that's I'm talking to Senior Dickie Greenleaf. I'm like, uh, no, you're not. So. And then eventually gets killed off by it. Again, another this interesting aspect of adaptation. So in this movie, he gets killed with that bust who I forget. It's some Roman general who also had like a gay lover, apparently. I think all the all the Greeks and Romans of that era were. Actually, there was one Roman emperor who was considered weird that he didn't have a gay lover. I can't remember who it was, but it's like, anyway, it was considered weird at the time. That's what the the Academy was, but. Kevin Spacey would have been happy. In that uh, Purple Noon in the French film, it's actually a jade statue of Buddha that he kills him with. Oh, uh, that's random. Which is interesting. I don't know. I think it's like that peace and love and, and he's like just killing him with like Buddha. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, anyways, I think it's both interesting. If you ask me, I can nail you to the cross. I, I wish they had actually gone a little bit further with him getting him out of the hotel because actually that's my favorite scene in the, in the French film yeah. because he, that actor is not giving the other actor any help like he is dead weight <laughs> like literally just dead weight he's just like flopped over and he that actor struggles for like three minutes getting him down the stairs into the car and you feel it because it's like he is tired he's sweating and he's like <laughs> just getting this dead body into the car you don't ever really see that 
in, in this film, which I wish they had tried to do. Uh, oh, of them, like yeah. getting that, like really showing the effort of getting a dead body down the stairs and into a car. Matt Damon had the Brad Pitt uh, body, but yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman cannot be a light dead no. weight. Well, in, in, the, yeah, in the original film, he's not either. Like he's a pretty hefty guy that he's lugging downstairs. I remember when I used to swim and I once trained for being a lifeguard, they have like body weight sort of yeah. dummies and even doing like 70, 80 pounds, Kyle. Was like, it's, it's hard. <laughs> yeah, it's incomprehensible. And Phyllis Seymour Hoffman looks like he weighs, you know, over 200 easily. Yeah. That's not uh, for normal human to be able to bring down an Italian and, set yeah. of And s- Matt might cases. be a buck 30. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, he's he's not... <laughs> He's not a big Matt man. was cut. He was. He was cut in that Apparently movie. Apparently, he, he uh, starved himself just to get like even more cut. For I, that I was actually surprised to see in the trivia how often he Christian bailed in the nineties. Yeah. Apparently, he uh, he got sick doing Courage Under Fire because uh, oh, really? he lost too much weight. And uh, hmm. yeah, but he he's in it. I mean, he's he's pretty hefty now. By the way, as a very quick side tangent, apparent Christian Bale is not going to do any more body dysmorphia for future roles. Well, he gets uh, sick. Even well, he said, doesn't like, De Niro he's, have he's too, life? He's too yeah. old now, and it's like it takes too much of a toll on his body. And apparently, he saw who was it? Gary Oldman in uh, The Darkest Hour, where he played Winston Churchill, and he was like, "How did you get uh, so big for that role?" He's like, uh, "Makeup, prosthetics." Yeah, <laughs> it's like, oh, imagine. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I remember De Niro got sick for Raging Bull too, because oh, uh, probably he could put on so much weight. Can't do, yeah, he can't do that. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, we've already mentioned it, but that idea of like becoming a fake, being a fake somebody rather than a real nobody is what the driving force of this film is. Is that a phrase that resonates with you at all? Or is it just sure. a little bit extra I mean, spice to the film? No, uh, well, extra spice. I mean, this is the classic existential problem, right? This idea of how to find one's identity. It's why I don't think that you necessarily have to have immediate experience to understand thematically what it's like to be in a closet. I think that uh, metaphorically, many of us are uh, in terms of trying to have an identity that we actually realize, whether they're real or imagined or realistic or total bullshit. So many of us, the human condition is to want something else. Whatever it is we have, we have no gratitude for things that are in front of us. The interesting thing about this, because they put that layer of class warfare, and this is the 50s, I mean, where's his apartment beside a slaughterhouse? All I could think about when he was getting into that limo is how fucking terrible it must smell to live in a basement apartment beside a butcher's. Like, so gross. To go into this Italian sort of villa and uh, these palatial estates and literally do nothing, you know? Smoke cigarettes, go to jazz clubs. That is such an extreme idea Never mind uh, coming out of the closet sex- uh, in a sexual sense, but this, just the living conditions are so extremely opposite in this movie and in this era that I think uh, it's no it's no surprise that this sort of existential thinking came out of po- uh, World War II. Um, you yeah, co- go from abject poverty and seeing the presumed riches of capitalist society. Everybody believes they are entitled to more, and uh, I, you know I'm no different. Uh, I struggle yeah. with that all the time. I always well, think I, yeah. I should get something for nothing, Kyle. Like, send me stuff, man. Money for yeah. nothing, man. That's what I want. <laughs> um, the like, and I don't know if that line is in the novel, honestly. But I was, I've been thinking about this. You know, we've been talking about the year 1999 now for a, an entire calendar year, and and when I look over like the 52 films <laughs> that we have talked about in the year 1999. I think a lot of them, like this is like their actual central theme. Like if you do look at even in the in the Matrix or uh, Office Space or American Beauty, uh, et cetera, et cetera, all these films that we've watched, I think that is what's driving a lot of the characters, right? It's like, I'd rather not just be this real nobody stuck in a job that has no future. I'd rather, uh, quote unquote, fake it. I think that is one of their driving things. They're sick of being real nobodies. I don't know. I, I think it, I think it goes beyond that i i'm like i'm listening to and i think isn't this actually the driving force for any fictional narrative writing doesn't this transcend eros i mean i think the only difference with 99 uh, at least in this sort of microscopic lens we're putting on this 
is that 99 out of the, that decade feels like this boiling tipping over point where people were brave enough to just throw it on a public screen and right. it caught public attention instead of being an indie or European film where it was like, you know, in some back alley and we really just wanted to watch another Schwarzenegger command. I mean, those movies are awesome too, like the popcorn, quote unquote, yeah. popcorn flick. But, uh, you know, you're a big, uh, even before Shakespeare, there's so many classic narratives where the driving point is this idea that they people don't want to be themselves. Even Greek mythology, you're talking about that show. If not all of them, more than half of those stories are based on this fundamental principle that uh, people don't know who they are, demigod or otherwise, <laughs> and they have to go through these trials to become something that they're not. And, also, uh, also, Zeus is horny as fuck because he... Yeah, <laughs> Love. Here's the sex. other thing. So, speaking of sex, apparently Jude Law has like six kids with four different women. All um, right. So don't let's not shame people. No, I'm just saying. Uh, you know, this, these are classical themes. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, the sowing of the oats. Apparently, these are not new things that are uh, popping up in our millennium. Uh, this is this is some age old human nature stuff. And this is why I think a movie like this will resound uh, and uh, resonate with uh, a wide audience. I am surprised, though, that many people went to go watch this in the theater. This does Me and feel my a little aunt bit and uncle like, included, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> this does feel like a little bit of an art cinema. Type it is of movie, more artsy. I honestly think this is. It was promoted a lot more as a thriller when it is a very laid back thriller for like the first half. Like you have to get through it to get into like the real meat of it. We're done here. The Machine has asked us to wrap up here, so I guess we will move on to rating it here in just a moment. But uh, that is what Dave and I thought of The Talented Mr. Ripley. Uh, what do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. If you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page, letterbox.com slash kdvstm. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support us for as low as $1 per month. Of course, we do not want you to donate if it in any way causes you financial hardship. Something you can do for absolutely free is to leave us a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. Dave, I do want to know what you have rated this movie out of five. What would you give it out of five? Quickly, I don't know if this movie still holds up. I think it does. I actually do think it holds up. And I think it goes back to what you have consistently brought up, Dave, which is I think things set in a period piece or as a period piece, when they're not made like this is currently what's going on in our culture, have a little bit of extra legroom sometimes because you're not so power, beholden sure. to trends and stuff. So I think it still holds up as far as like acting, cinematography, etc. Uh, I think there's enough themes that are that can travel the distance for me. Whether you like the movie is another question, but I think mm. it still actually can okay. hold its its resonance. All right. I mean, yeah, maybe. maybe. <laughs> Dave, Dave disagrees. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, All right. So as far as the rating, I don't know. I, I think... We did have a pretty good discussion about this movie, so there's a lot there. But as a movie itself, I, again, uh, as gripping as it could be in moments, I didn't actually like it a lot. But uh, that being said, I, I think I'm, I think I settled for like a three, so not three. terrible. I mean, yeah, I think it could have been higher. And I love all the actors. There's just something about it. It's icky, Kyle. It's it is icky. Sticky, but icky. it's meant yeah. to be icky. I like when things get icky. I liked it a little bit more than you, of course. Like I said, there's uh, it's not a perfect home run for me. I still think that there are uh, some pacing issues in the middle of it for me that they drag it down a bit. And uh, I couldn't get over. And again, this is like 2020 bias, but it's I really do wish Kate Blanchett and Gwyneth Paltrow had been switched as far as characters go. Again, would never have happened in 1999, but it's so glaringly obvious, I think, right now. Uh, anyways, I'm giving it a four. I think it's solid. I think it's strong. I probably will watch this movie again, to be honest. But Sorry, uh, are you rating the movie or Jude Law's penis? No, let, we'll Well, if we're rating yeah. the penis, then at least a four and a half. It's <laughs> not quite Ewan McGregor, but it's, uh, yeah. Anyways, this, so that, what that means is that that averages out to 3.5. That is going to tie with four other films. So we need okay. to figure out 
where it rates amongst this group of films. So from top to bottom, that's The Mummy, Girl Interrupted, The Green Mile, and Three Kings. So would you rate that at the top, the middle, at the bottom? The Mummy, Girl Interrupted, Green Mile, Three Kings. Man, we enjoyed all of those movies for the most part. We did. That's a tough one. I, I actually think, in a way, it's similar to me to The Green Mile. I actually like this movie, I think, more than The Green Mile. Uh, in that there's a chunk of it that I think is like brilliant, like five out mm-hmm. of five. And then there's parts mm-hmm. of it like, oh, it really drags that, that the rating down for me. So I would, I would definitely put it above the green mile, but I don't know if you agree. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a fair way to put it. What are the top, like... Uh, the mummy girl and the girl interrupted are above that. I think it will go, yeah, above or below girl interrupted. They're kind of the same sort of uh, energy. Like if we could put a tie, I would put them as a tie there because... Mm-hmm. Like that movie, exactly like you said, there are moments in their performances that are incredible, but the whole movie as a whole is kind of there. There's something about it that's not perfect. So mm-hmm. I don't know. We're, we're I I'm think, deferring to you in this whole. Yeah, this I think whole I'll, I'll split the difference here. I think we should put it below the mummy, above Girl Interrupted, mostly right. because if we just look at the the rating itself, we both gave uh, Girl Interrupted three point five. And in The Mummy, you gave it a four, I gave it a three. And in this case, The Talent of Mr. Ripley, I gave it a four, you gave it a three. So it's basically the same as The Mummy. Uh, yeah. But let's put it underneath The Mummy, above Girl Interrupted. Okay. All right. So entering our list at the number 22 position is The Talented Mr. Ripley. Boy, we have watched a lot of films. <laughs> Dave. <laughs> we have watched <laughs> at least 52, 52 yeah. films from the year 1999. And this machine is still like geared towards us watching movies from 1999. So I have no idea what we could possibly be watching next. Uh, So let me just push this button here. Oh, this is really weird. It's not even a movie. It just says wrap up, (laughs) which seems very ominous to me. Mm. So I guess I guess next week we'll just be going through our thoughts and feelings of the year 1999. Right. I, I wonder if this, this must mean that the, the machine has been satiated. It's been sated and it's satiated. satiated. Sati- it, whatever that word is, it, it's been, it's that it has done that and is going to allow us to go on about our lives. And we don't have to do this podcast anymore, Dave. You know, it's, it's great. I'm, I'm tired of spending so much time with you. <laughs> I know. No, uh, I was going to ask like, so did we, do it? Does that mean the apocalypse <laughs> I guess isn't it's happening? been averted? I guess because it was its thunder was stolen by an actual apocalypse happening, it's decided it's going to, just like Optimus, Optimus Prime in the fourth Transformers movie, fly away into space is what it's going to do. I can't believe you referenced Michael Bay. Also, um, you know what? Maybe it's crashing. Maybe we should try to turn it off and turn it back, and on, back again. on again. All right. Well, I'll do that uh, in preparation for next week as we maybe do a bit of a, a wrap up of, of our season that was. Uh, all right. Well, have you done something with your hair? And where are your glasses? I, <laughs> why are you wearing my clothes, Kyle? All, all I need is your hat. Give me your hat. Just give me your hat. They just don't like you.